Well, what do you do when you see a homeless person? You know, I don't know if it happens to you. Maybe you're in downtown and you walk and you see somebody who's homeless. Uh, maybe you're at a traffic light and somebody's there and they've got a cardboard sign and they're looking at you and you're like, I don't know, why, I, I don't want to make eye contact. I don't know if you ever feel that. You're like, I don't want to even look at them. But then if you've got little kids in the car, they are looking at them. Like, Dad, look at the guy with the sign. I'm like, don't look at him. You know, <laughs> why am I saying that? Right? Why do we, why do, we do that? Uh, do, you, are you, do you tend to be maybe critical of them? Do you go, his shoes are way too nice for him to be homeless? Do you say things like, man, I wonder where, why, how does every homeless person find a black marker and a cardboard sign? You know what I mean? Just, and I'm not even saying, by the way, I'm not saying there's a right thing to do. It's complex, right? Poverty, you know, homelessness is as complex as people in poverty is. And so, you know, the, the question is just what goes on in our heart? Like, here's another example. Whenever you see uh, the, the St. Jude's commercials and a celebrity gets on and says, hey, kids have cancer. Here's a bunch of pictures of kids with cancer. What do you give? What do you do? Do you give? Do you not give? Do you change the channel? Well, how about when the, you know, the, they talk about starving kids in Africa and they show you the pictures and the kids are just so thin? And it's kind of overwhelming. And they say, well, for only this amount of money, you could do something. And there's usually a telephone number. And well, what do you do? For some of you, the first time you know, that you've ever gotten this experience is maybe you went on a short-term mission trip. And it happened to me when I was in Mumbai. And it's overwhelming when you see the need, when you see the need of people. And that's part of the difficulty, right? It's like it's so overwhelming, sometimes you don't know what to do. I was in New York City this year. There was a young man. He was laying completely face down on the sidewalk in New York City with his shoes off. He had no shoes that I saw. Completely sleeping in the middle of the sidewalk. No pillow, no nothing, just laying on the ground completely sleeping. I'm like, that is, I don't even know what's going on there. And I'm bringing this up because just so you know, Christians have always wrestled with what do we do with the neediest people that we find? This is, by the way, if you, if the two, two of the best-selling books in the 21st century for Christians that are, like, books aren't usually orthodox and make the New York Times best-selling list, but two of them did, Radical and Crazy Love. And for some of you, those are the only two Christian books you've ever read, and that's okay. Uh, but, but those books, they're dealing with the question, what do we do with all of the needy people around us? They're asking more than that, but they're asking that question. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Jesus' scariest parable. In preparation for Halloween, okay, we're going to look at Jesus' scariest parable. Uh, in Matthew 25, it, Jesus is going to tell a parable called the sheep and the goats. And, and this is a common theme, by the way. Jesus would often talk about the needy. So, you know, the, the, the parable, the good Samaritan, which I preached on a couple years ago, but the whole story is, hey, this guy, and he's beat up, and he's naked, and he needs medical attention, and he doesn't have clothes. And the whole story is, well, who's going to come by and who's going to help this man? Jesus tells another parable. He says, hey, you know, he tells this parable about this guy that invites all these people to his house. Then he says, hey, here's what you should do. Invite a bunch of people who are poor and disabled and can never pay you back. Invite them into your house and you'll be blessed. And most of us don't take that seriously and most of us never have done that. But Jesus has a heart for the needy. And what I want to do is I want to read to you slowly and in its entirety the sheep and the goats. And, and, and if you've never heard this before, I want, you're going to be really shocked. And if you've heard it before, try to hear it for the first time. The first time I ever heard this, some of you have never heard of Keith Green, but if you ever want to listen to something, Keith Green, he's an old singer, he died in the 80s. The first time I ever heard this was someone had given me, actually it was Pastor Dave's parents, had given me a Keith Green CD and I put it in, and it's eight and a half minute song called The Sheep and the Goats, and all he does is sing scripture the whole time. And I, I, was, I can remember being 16 and hearing this and being overwhelmed the first time I heard it. So, so let, let's read this together. It's, it starts in chapter 25. Verse 31, let's read this. When the Son of Man comes, and that's Jesus' favorite designation for himself. When the Son of Man comes, and that's a reference to the return of Christ, in his glory, 
and all of the angels. The first time Jesus came, he came by himself. The second time, he's coming with all of the angels. All of the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. So he's coming in glory to sit on a glorious throne. In the book of Revelation, the throne is God's favorite piece of furniture. It's everywhere. It says this, Before him will be gathered all of the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And by the way, this was a very common thing. Shepherds would, the, the sheep and the goats would mingle and mix together throughout the day, and then at the end of the day, the shepherd would come out, and he'd say, all right, he'd call them. The sheep would go to one pen, the goats would go to another. So this is what Jesus often does. He takes an earthly story and he communicates a heavenly truth through it. Verse 34, then the king, and this is Jesus, will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You say, well, why? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And one of the most amazing things about this parable is everybody's surprised, both the sheep and the goats. And so they say, uh, then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when, did, when were you hungry and we fed you? Or thirsty and we gave you something to drink? And when did... We see you as a stranger, and we welcomed you in. Or you were naked, and when did we clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he, the tone changes, and you can feel it. And then he turns to his left, and he says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. Those have got to be the scariest words in the world. What hell is, is separation from God's people and God's presence. That's what hell is. So first he separates them from God's people, and now he's separating them from God's presence. And he says this, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger or naked? Or sick or in prison? And did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then the terrifying phrase in verse 46 where, you know, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the whole Bible. No one talked about hell more than Jesus. He ends with this. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want to talk about this. What this parable is about is how Christians are called to meet the felt needs and the forever needs of people, right? You have both. You have felt needs and you have forever needs. You have physical needs and you have spiritual needs. You have temporal needs and you have eternal needs. And Christians are those who care about them all. 
And so I want to take some time, and we're just going to look through this. The first thing I want us to see is the high and low picture. What I mean by that is the exaltation and the humiliation of Jesus that we see in this parable. So look at verse 31 and 32. It says, when the, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. See, most people have a very small view of Jesus. They look at him and they go, he reminds me of a marginalized Galilean peasant who has long hair and is nice to everybody. And what you have to understand is we live in between the two comings of Christ. His first coming and his second coming, and they're going to be very different. In his first coming, he comes in a cradle. Second coming, he comes on the clouds. First coming, he comes by himself. Second coming, he comes with all the angels. First coming, he bears God's wrath. Second coming, he brings God's wrath. First coming, he goes to one people in one place. Second coming, he comes to every person in every place and gathers all of the nations. And all of this starts with a great and glorious view of Jesus. He's a shepherd king who judges. Do you see that? That's what he is. That's the three things we're told about him. He's a shepherd, so he's going to care for people, and he's going to separate them. He's a king that's mentioned several times, and he actually introduces himself as the one who has a kingdom. So he's a king, he's got a kingdom, and then what's most offensive is that he judges people, right? Because if Americans know one verse, what is it? Judge not, lest ye be judged. I'm not sure how that's the one verse that every American knows, but they know that verse. And, and, and what Jesus is talking about there, by the way, that is a real verse. Jesus really did say it. And he's talking about not being critically, religiously, judgmentally thinking that you're better than other people. It's like, yeah, we, we do struggle with that. Every person does. And that, that is wrong and that we need to repent. And, and the heart of that is that you realize you're the biggest sinner and you need to repent first. But, but Jesus also says, John 7, 24, if you ever want to say, well, there's actually another verse that Jesus said that's very much similar to that. And he says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so what you see Jesus doing is he comes back and he says, okay, uh, I'm going to separate things. And by the way, that's what you do when you judge. You go, this is good, this is bad, this is wise, this is foolish, this is right, this is wrong. And so Jesus comes and he judges. Now, we don't like judgment because we know we're guilty, right? This is why the human heart, because we have a conscience and we know I don't want to be judged, on everything I've ever said and everything I've ever done and everything that I've ever thought. In the final judgment, though, I want you to understand this. Just like I said last week, the, the return of Christ is not a secondary teaching. It's not a tertiary teaching. It's a primary belief of Christians. The, the second main belief at the end of time is not just that Jesus Christ will return, but that he will reward or punish every person. And here's, you go, well, on a real simple scale, what does, what, how does the final judgment affect me? Like practically, what does the final judgment mean? Here's what the final judgment means. Everything you do matters. Everything you do matters. That's what it means. It's like, well, I don't like that. It's like, well, actually, here's, here's the positive of that. That's actually how you have a meaningful life. People go, I would like a meaningful life. Well, here's how you have a meaningful life. Everything you do matters. It matters so much more than you can even think. And part of what it means to be made in God's image is that God will honor you by judging you. It's a very deep idea. I'm going to honor you. You're so significant. You're so important. You're not a nobody. You're not nothing. You're not inconsequential. You are so important. We're going to talk about everything that you've ever done. And that's the final judgment. And that's why, again, we talked about last week, you don't want that apart from Christ. And we'll talk about that toward the end. But then what I want you to see is not just his exaltation. This is what you see together in Scripture is his humiliation. So if you read it, in verse 40 and verse 45, he says this, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And whenever you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Now reread that, and because we've maybe familiar with it, we think, oh, that's nice, and that's quaint, and that's cute, and isn't that nice for Jesus to associate himself with the least of these? 
It's like, I want you to understand that that is a completely unique idea in all of history and all of religion. God's never identified with those at the bottom of the barrel, ever. Right? The only reason that like, Americans would even think that's a great idea is because they've been living in a thinly veiled Judeo-Christian culture their whole life. That is counterintuitive. No one has ever taught that. What would normally happen is, like, Pharaoh uh, is in control, and he goes, well, I'm in control, and I'm going to create gods, and guess whose side they're on? Mine. And so that's what everyone has always believed. The gods are with the powerful. The gods are with the wealthy. The gods are with the influential. And I can't tell you how amazing this is, that in the Old Testament, God says, I will be a husband to the widow. It's like, well, who's the widow? Well, respectfully, in that culture, nobody. In a culture dominated by men, with no husband, it would be nobody. God's like, I pick that. That's on, she's on my team. And then he says, okay, the orphan. And you think it's bad if you don't have a dad now. It's like, you didn't have a mom or dad back then. It's like, whoa. You have nothing. And God says, I will be a father to the fatherless. This is a deep idea. He says, I will be close to the brokenhearted. He says, I, I will make a place for the sojourner and the foreigner and the immigrant and the refugee. This is such a unique idea, and, and, and here's what it means just symbolically, spiritually for you. Here's what that means. If you want to experience more of Christ, it's found among the spiritually needy and the physically needy, and you know this. You have actually know this. Every time somebody comes on a mission trip, I know what they're going to do. They're going to come back. They're going, oh my goodness, oh, my faith has increased. My prayer life has increased. My love for the word has increased. My love for people has increased. It's like, you thought you were going on a mission trip, but you actually had a deeper experience of Christ. You thought you were going to volunteer at the, at the pregnancy care center, and you have a deeper experience of Christ. You thought you were just going to kind of help around the Winston-Salem Rescue Mission, you have a deeper experience of Christ. You thought you were going to just kind of have your lost friend over and have a conference, spiritual conversation, you have a deeper experience of Christ. That's what that means. And so everything starts with Christ. We have this exaltation view. He's the son, glorious throne, but then at the same time, he connects himself to the least of these. And then he goes on and he gives this scary parable. I mean, I don't know what else to call it except for a scary parable where if you were to just read it, just read it by itself, it would appear to say, if you don't care about the physical needs of people, you're going to hell. Just like, you know, a shallow surface reading would appear to say that. And by the way, that's why you can't ever take just one passage and rip it out of your Bible and say, this is the only passage I'm going to look at. That's how every cult ever has started. Uh, it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. So when you read the Bible, you see that repeatedly, consistently, comprehensively, um, the Bible teaches that we are not saved by what we do, but by what Christ has done. And that what, what um, things like good deeds to people, which are talked about in this parable, they are signs that we are saved. They show that we are saved. We don't work for our salvation, we work from our salvation. And I wanna talk about this for a while, because the big idea here is that we are saved by grace, but we are evaluated by works. And, and what that means is that a heart that's been changed and transformed by the good news of Jesus is going to care about the felt needs and the forever needs of other people. And I want to talk about this because think about it with me for a second. The primary identity of a Christian, if you could just sum it up, the primary identity of a Christian is a sinner that's been saved by God's grace. Right? I mean, and if you really experientially know that and feel that, not just intellectually assent to it and sign a document and say, I believe that. But if you feel that, if you feel in your marrow, like, I am a sinner, justly deserving, I'm sinful by nature, I'm sinful by choice, 
and I'm justly deserving God's wrath and God's punishment, but God has been incredibly gracious to me that two things happen in your heart. One is you will always identify with people in need. If you're living as a sinner saved by grace, it's, going, it's like you can't live as a sinner saved by grace and look at a poor person and go, I don't care about you. Because you're just like, well, wait, no one's been more needy than me, right? And here's, by the way, what you can say to every person. You can say, what you are physically, I was spiritually. Right? And some of you, it's like, you've never been poor. You never will be poor. Not even close to it. But you can look at somebody in poverty and go, you know what? I, actually, I know what it's like to be spiritually bankrupt. I know what it's like to have nothing. And I know what it's like for somebody else to pay my debts for me. Therefore, I'm going to be incredibly... Con- it doesn't, I don't know. That doesn't mean what we do with every poor person that we've ever seen, and, and we're going to talk about that and l- how this all works out. I'm talking about at the heart level. What, what Tim Keller, in his great book, Generous Justice, he calls it a gospel-shaped mercy. And the second thing is that you're going to, wanna, you're going to want to be, and in many cases, you're going to be very generous. That's the grace part, because you're going to realize, wait, God has been so gracious to me. God has been so great. He gave his first. He gave his best. He gave his only. Wow. Like, if you really believe that, like, if you believe the song that we sang, I was a prisoner, and now I've been set free. Right? It's like, well, why would you ever care about prisoners? Well, because you were a prisoner. And this is why theology, by the way, is so deeply practical in our lives, and we need to feel this. Now, I want, I want to clarify a few things, because, you know, the la- because what we're talking about, really, in this passage is what's called mercy ministry. Mercy is when, this is Tim Keller's definition, when you, do, when you meet felt needs with good deeds. Felt needs are not shallow needs. It's just like, it could be, I'm really hungry. I need clothing. I need a job. Help. That's a felt need. And we meet felt needs with good deeds. But I want to I clarify a few things because, you know, I think in our city, and I love Winston-Salem. I hope to be here for, for, for a long time. I mean, many times, I think I've told you guys before, I've looked at Wake Baptist Hospital and thought, I think I'm going to die in there, you know? <laughs> just because I'm planning on being here. I love this city. Um, but, you know, we live in a uniquely religious city, and sometimes I feel like the last thing this city needs is just another organization meeting people's felt needs. And I, that doesn't mean that we don't, need the poor, we don't need more poor people taken care of, and we don't need more hungry That's not what I'm saying. I, you're gonna, you can't hear that if you're going to hear this whole sermon. What I mean is, um, w- what makes Christianity unique is that we believe in hell. Just to get really, and that hell shows up twice in this parable. And if you believe in hell, it puts everything in the right perspective. It's like, Okay, we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And so if we're going to build relationships to, for food or for the homeless or, or, or helping the sh- with shelter or um, helping, you know, w- with women and single moms and what, orphans or whatever, it's like, you know, we're going to have to go, what, we're going to have to say the same thing Jesus said. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? Here's what that means. What would it profit a man if they, what good is it to say this? Let me help fill your belly as you enter the lake of fire. Let me get you a job and an education and a career as you enter into eternal punishment. Do you see how foolishness, foolish it is when you think about it? As soon as you really believe in heaven and hell and eternity, it puts everything in the right perspective. Now, it, does, it doesn't mean, by the way, it doesn't mean that you don't do good deeds. Of course you do. In fact, sometimes you need to do the good deeds so that people can hear the gospel. Like there are some people and their lives are so terrible and tragic that they need mercy before they can even hear the gospel. You know, there are women who are kidnapped and they're raped six times a day. 
I know it's an extreme example, but guess what they need? They need to be alleviated of their physical suffering. And then they can hear the gospel. It's like, think about the guy, the good Samaritan. Who, what is he? Well, he's basically dead on the road. That's why two people pass him by. He looks like he's dead. So what does he need? Comprehensive care, and then come back in a few days and share the gospel with him. But we need to meet the physical needs. And another thing that we really believe under all of this is that the, the good news that we have to share with people is not that we're making Winston-Salem a better place. The good, right? Because it's like, we don't want to make Winston-Salem, because if you just focus on good deeds and felt needs, what you end up doing is making Winston-Salem a better place from which to go to hell. It's like, well, we don't want to do that. We actually believe the good news is that Jesus Christ bore God's wrath for you. The good news is that you can be forgiven of every sin. The good, the good news is that God sent his only son to die for your sins. That's the good news, and that Jesus is going to prepare a place for you. So I say all that to say the summary of what we're called to is we are called to care for the lost and to care for the least. And, and, and what matters here is motives. The reason we're talking about this gospel-shaped motive is there are many motives why people serve poor people, right? You're never going to have a perfectly pure motive in your life. I've never had a perfectly pure motive. But it's interesting if you think, well, why do people serve the poor, right? Well, some people do it just because they want to feel. It's like they're so, you know, their lives are so inundated with busyness and selfishness and the next Netflix series and their own life and their own advancement. And I've seen this. I saw at Duke every once in a while people going, I think I'm just going to go to build houses with Habitat for Humanity for spring break. Because they realize my whole life is so selfish. Maybe I'll feel something if I go do something for somebody else. So that's one reason people serve sometimes. Here's another reason. Some people serve just out of duty, right? They feel like they have to. They, uh, they've been given so much. They have to serve. A lot of people serve out of pride. It's interesting. George Orwell, who wrote 1984, he said that after working with people who were advocating for the poor, he said he's convinced most people who advocate for the poor don't love the poor. They hate the rich. Something we're thinking about. It's very interesting. Some people do it just, right? Sometimes we serve so that we feel better about ourselves. Nietzsche said he thought many people serve so that the poor would know who was really in charge. And the poor would know how great we are. That there would be hidden pride in all of this. So to have a really gospel, you know, it's like, it's kind of like Jerry Lewis. Some of you are old enough to remember Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis, he would, for 45 years, he did these um, muscular dystrophy telethons. And he would say, you know, he, he, on Labor Day, he would say, you know, give your gift. And, and what he would say to people is when they would give their gift, he said, when you write a check, what I want you to do is after you write this check, I want you to put it in the mail. And I want you to go into your bathroom and I want you to look in the mirror and I want you to say, I am a great person. Do you see what's motivating there? He's just being, I mean, just being very, very honest about how people think about their giving and give, think about their generosity. Now, a, a lady named Beatrice Webb, Beatrice Webb, may never heard of her, in, in the 1800s, she was in charge of organizing the modern welfare state in, in Britain. And she, she was not a Christian. She was trying to, to care for the poor in her city. And at the end of her life, she writes in her diary about how, how difficult it was. I want to read this to you. She says this, Somewhere in my diary, I think it's 1890, I wrote, I've staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts of man. How little you can count on changing some of these. For instance, the appeal of wealth and power by any change in the social machinery. She's saying, you, I, I made all the system structural changes, but what hasn't changed is the human heart. 
And there she says, no amount of knowledge or science will be able to avail unless we can curb this bad impulse. And so I want to talk for just a little bit about what does it look like to care for the lost and to care for the least. And I want you to look one more time at verses 35 and 36. He says this, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. See, what happens oftentimes is churches or Christians are tempted to either care just for the lost or just for the least. Right? So theologically liberal churches tend to just care for the least because they don't believe in hell. So you can usually tell a theologically liberal church because it's all about compassion, it's all about mercy, and it's only about compassion, and it's only about mercy in the city. And it's only about good deeds, it's never about good news. Guess what the uh, temptation of theologically conservative churches like us are? To only care for the lost. And it's because it's such a massive priority. Because of the reality of hell, this is why it starts with good motives, but we can often forget about the least. Now, or let me tell you why this is important. Because you are a soul, just think about this practically with me, you are a soul in a body in a community. That's who you are. You're a soul in a body in a community. This is why Jesus dies to save your soul, is, prepare, is going to resurrect your body, and said he's going to prepare a place for you. Why? Well, because you're a soul in a body in a community. And, and now Christians, this is not a new idea. This is why you know, I always encourage people to study church history. Guess what Christians did when they moved into any new area? Every time Christians would move into kind of a new frontier, they would do three things. They'd go, let's plant a church, let's start a school, let's build a hospital. Like, if you read the story, Harvard was built while they were starving and freezing to death. They built Harvard in five years. It's like, well, why'd they do that? It's like, well, because they were committed to the mind. It's like, well, you you go in the city, you're like, why is it called Wake Baptist? It's like, because Christians started almost every hospital because they care for the body. So it's like Jesus, what did Jesus do? He had a teaching, preaching, healing ministry. Well, why teaching? Because of the mind. Well, why healing? Because of the body. Well, why preaching? Because of the soul. He had a comprehensive ministry. I was talking to a guy, very successful um, young man uh, who started an international ministry and he was explaining it to people and he said, we're about two things, Jesus and jobs. And in about an hour, I was completely overwhelmed by how wise he was. He said, here's why Jesus, and he saves your soul, and he forgives your sin, and he reconciles you to God, and your eternity's secure. But you know what happens is when God saves your soul, he, he solves your biggest problem, but not every problem. He solves your largest problem, but not every problem. And he said, what happens is a lot of times you, internationally in these developing countries, people go, well, uh, they need health care, and they need shelter, and they need food, they need education. He goes, well, instead of giving them all those, why don't we just give them a job? And, and if you give somebody Jesus, primarily, but Jesus and a job, then you've affected their soul, their body, and their community. And so I want, I want, to, I want to talk about this for a little bit and try to get, some, try to get practical. And, I, and what I'm trying to do, the reason I'm spending a lot of time giving us um, examples and, and um, even ways to kind of compartmentalize in good ways, I hope, and think about these things is so that we can have a marathon mindset, right? Because often what happens is people get very excited about mercy ministry, meeting people's felt needs with good deeds, and they don't have a marathon mindset. They get, they get burned out in, in just a few weeks or, or, or a few years. And so I want to talk about, see, see, Christians are called to three things. We're called to ministry, mercy, and mission. That's the whole Christian life. It's like, well, what's ministry? The local church. Like, if you're in a community group, it's like, well, what are you doing? You're praying for each other. You're caring for each other. You're going to serve one another. You're going to disciple one another. That's the local church, and that's, that's uh, ministry. 
And then we care about mercy. Mercy is when you care for the least of these. And, you know, and, that's, and that's when you serve people, you bring the help of Jesus with good deeds. And then there's mission. And mission is when you bring, help the lost by bringing the hope of Jesus in good words. And, and Christians are called to all three of these. And, and I want to give you guys a couple practical examples of, of uh, areas of felt needs in our city, really in any city. And I want to talk about this for a few minutes, and, and, and it was interesting when we were looking at this, and I, I told you guys this, but every Wednesday we look over the sermon as a staff, and it's really helpful for me. And, um, and you know, we, we had a conversation, and we said, you know, when we got to this part of, of looking over the sermon, we said, one or two of the staff said, this feels very political, this part. What I'm about to say. And the reason that that is, is a couple reasons. One, we live in a society where everything's political. Uh, two, we live in a society where... Um, you know, most people think that the po- political is the foundation. Like, it doesn't get any deeper than the political. It's like, actually, there's three foundations under the political. There's the philosophical, there's the psychological, and there's the theological. And because people don't live in those domains anymore, everything's political. I'm not dealing with the political. I'm dealing with today with the theological. And actually, Christians should be confusing to every um, political party. You know, like, I love John Piper. He's one of my mentors and heroes. He would, on, uh, on Martin Luther King weekend... In January, he would preach on the evils of racism and the need for racial reconciliation. And then the next weekend would be Sanctity of Life Sunday, and he would preach on the sinfulness of abortion and the need to care for the unborn and the preborn. And he said, I would do that. It was incredibly confusing in my city. Because one felt like a Republican issue and one felt like a Democratic issue, and here we are at church talking about both of these issues. And so it, 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 for some of you, you may have a political ideology and by the way, this is interesting. People aren't, in America aren't as much possessed by demons as they are possessed by ideologies, <laughs> right? Like people, have, they, people think, like, I've got this idea. It's like, no, that idea has you. You know what I mean? You, you think you have this great idea. It's like, no, 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 lots of people have believed that before, and that idea is more controlling you than you're controlling that idea. And one of the ways that you know you have an ideology, by the way, is you cannot see the other side of something. That's, like, that's a warning sign. That's a self-awareness thing. If I can't even see the other side of it, it's become an ideology in my life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give us a handful of issues that may feel a certain way to you, but God has called us to care for these. And and, and people may make different political votes and decisions on these, but how we handle them as Christians, we we need to have a heart and compassion. Let me just tell you a couple of them. First, the poor, right? And here's what happens whenever you talk about the poor. The Republicans go, it's because of moral failure they're poor. And sometimes that is true. And the Bible talks about that. Book of Proverbs talks about that. But another main reason, the, the Democrats will come around and go, it's oppression. And the Bible talks about that. People are poor, and the Bible actually gives a third reason. Some people are poor because of calamity. It's like you have illness and injury and no health care. See what happens to you. See how your family recovers. You live in the wrong part of town with no help during Hurricane Katrina. See what happens to you. And so all, all, we, there's a lot of hard things with, with, with how to deal with the poor, right? It's complex. But one of the things we say is, well, you know what? I, again, I was, I, was financial, or I, was, I was spiritually poor. I want to have a heart for the poor. I don't know every answer of what to do with every poor person that I've ever seen. But I want to have a heart for the poor. Here's the second thing. We would care about orphans. Like, you know, we, we know that God has adopted us if we're Christians. That we, God was a father to us spiritually when we had no father. So we're gonna, it doesn't mean every Christian is in foster care system and, and helping with that. It doesn't mean that every Christian adopts internationally. It means that every Christian cares about this. I love the story J.D. Greer tells from the Summit Church where we came from. Our, our church was planted out of the Summit Church. He tells a story. He said, um, it's a very large church, the Summit. And he said a couple came up to him and told him they were in the 
uh, adoption process, foster care process. And uh, I guess you have to get a physical and you have to go to the doctor. And he, they're meeting with the, the doctor through this process. And the doctor says, so tell me why you want to adopt. And they said, well, you know, since you asked, I mean, you know, we've, we realized that spiritually, we're Christians, and we realized that spiritually we were far from God and we were orphans. And God rescued us when we had no dad and we now have a heart to do it with others. He says, he says that the doctor, the doctor looks at him and goes, do you go to the Summit Church? <laughs> Isn't that an awesome answer? And they said, yeah, he goes, we hear that all the time here. So the, the whole point is that you, your, your heart's been touched by that, right? There's single moms, there's widows, that through death or through divorce or through desertion, they found themselves in a very difficult situation. It's very interesting, I've not, most people don't talk about this. Do you know that Mary was almost a single mom? Jesus' mom. If it wasn't for Joseph deciding to marry her as a single mom, she would be a single mom. And we never hear about Joseph after age 12, so, so many think that maybe Jesus was raised by a single mom. That's an interesting thought. So of course we're gonna care for single moms. There's the unborn. The unborn and the preborn. You know, will Jesus say to anybody on that final day, I was in the womb and I was defenseless and you stood up for me? You know, I don't know how it ended up being that the most unsafe place to live in America is inside your mother's womb. That's the, that's the most unsafe place to live. You know, do you know that abortion is the exact opposite of the gospel? Abortion says, you will die so I can live. And the gospel says, no, I would like to die so you can live. And I'll tell you, I, I had an opportunity to meet with a gentleman, successful man, and he has a passion for the pro-life movement. And I, and I was sitting with him. He said, you know, I was at a pregnancy care banquet. And I've been to those before. He said, he said you know, they, and we were talking about a bunch of things. He was, he was just humbly sharing this with me. But he said, you know, the forum came around to uh, sign for what you want to do, how you want to help. And he said, you know what I wrote in that I was going to do? I wrote in there, imagine getting this. He goes, I wrote in, I'd like to pay for your marketing budget this year. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And he said, because what I want to do is I want to help. I want to help that when a woman looks up and she's wondering what to do and she's Googling it, we're the first thing that shows up. I thought, that's the kind of person that Jesus is going to say on the final day, I was defenseless and you did something about it. And you leverage what you knew. And you leverage your money. And you did something about it. Well, what about, what about the prisoner? Right? I don't know if you know the story of Chuck Colson. If not, you need to read it. Chuck Colson, he works for Richard Nixon. He went to jail for Watergate. He came to Christ in jail. And he gave the rest of his life to ministry, to prison ministry. And they say that... Um, when he died, uh, one of his friends tweeted about an hour after he died, he goes, Chuck Colson died. He said, I think about an hour ago, Chuck Colson heard a Galilean voice say, I was in prison and you visited me. You know, I, I, I talk about Billy Graham a lot because he's one of my heroes. I don't know if you know this one. Billy Graham, that great evangelist, when he would go into a city, he would preach at a stadium. And everybody knows that. That's what made it on TV. But what he would do afterwards is he would go into the prisons because they couldn't, they couldn't come to the, the things. So he would go to the prisons and then he would preach in the prison yards. And then he would say, take me to the men in solitary confinement. And there are pictures of Billy Graham, the great evangelist. And he's sitting in these individual cells with these men and he's leading them to Christ. 
And again, where do you get that idea? So you get the idea that I, I was a prisoner and, and Christ set me free. And, I, and look, I know we can't do everything, but we can do something. We, can, we can't care about every area. We can care. And by the way, that's what God does. God usually works on someone's heart and says and that God's going to do that to you or in your community group, and you're going to say, this is it. It's the unborn. That's who it is. I know it is. It's going to uniquely prick you, or you're going to go at single moms because my mom was single, and I, you know, whatever it was, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit you. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you, another, another area that we need to seriously consider are the elderly. And I mention this because most people don't talk about this. I had an opportunity. My community group went to go to assist, an assisted living home. And this is nothing against that assisted living home, and I think assisted living homes are good and all that. But I went to this assisted living home, and I talked to the lady at the front desk, and I said, tell me about this place. She was a young lady working the front desk, and she said, most people in this home, their kids got power of attorney took all their money, put them in this home, and went somewhere else. And it's like, well, you think about that. It's like, well, why don't you go, oh, here, we'll pay for everything, but why don't you go die alone over there? It's like, man, the elderly are forgotten in so many areas. And so, you know, as you, as you think about these things, you know, there, there's, there's the hunger, we have child hunger in our city. We, we, have, we have people that are sick in our city. We have the abuse in our city, and it's just beginning to ask, what do you do? So let me tell you practically what we try to do as a church is we try to think about organizations, not situations. Organizations, not situations, because situations are overwhelming. Like you walk down the street and you see a, a, a homeless drunk that looks like he has schizophrenia, the chance that you're going to make that worse is probably 100% if you try to do anything with it. And that's not to say you don't have responsibility. There are certain people, but all I'm saying is there are certain things that are so complex but it's like, you know, you, you go to, we, this is why we partner with the winston Summer Rescue Mission. It's like the winston Summer Rescue Mission knows how to deal with men with addiction, men in extreme poverty. They know how to, they know how to think about it. They know the questions to ask. They know the, the things to do. They know they have the conversations to have. They know the process to take them through. That's why we partner with them. I've got a buddy in this city, and I've talked about him before, but his name's Joe May. And Joe May started a church called Rise Church. And uh, the story, he wouldn't mind me saying this, Joe and his wife, they wanted to be missionaries with the IMB, the International Mission Board. And for various reasons, health reasons, they were not able to go overseas. And so they, they like, were real serious. They said, well, that's it. We're going to be missionaries here. Like, we're, real, not, we're not just going to use the word because it's cool. We're going to be missionaries in Winston-Salem. And so they moved into Watown. And you, so you're like, what's well, Watown? Exactly. M most people don't even know where that is. It's one of the, I don't, it's always hard to talk about these places. It's, it's one of the, under-resourced under communities, that would be a nice way to say it. And he moved him and his three kids into this area, and he started a church and a school. It's amazing. I'm, I mean, every time I see him, I'm like, dude, I look up to you so much. I mean, this guy's given his entire life there, and it's like, well, guess what? It's like, man, we're, we, we've been supporting. We're going to continue to generously support, support that ministry, not just financially. We want to we get invested and involved, but it's like he's there. He's been living there for three years. He understands the community. And so on Tuesday night, he got up here. And he shares with all, all of these pastors in the room, and he goes, we've baptized three men this week. And you're like, okay, that, that, you just broke generational spiritual and financial poverty in that area. It's like, how could we not? You know, and by the way, that's why as a church, we give away 11% of our budget. We do as a church what you should do as a family. We tithe. And we can't do everything that we want to do as a church because we tithe. That's what a family does. It's like, we can't hire every staff person. We can't do every cool thing we'd like to do to this building. Because there's local, there's national, and there's global needs. When I, when I went to Mumbai a year and a half ago, and I got on the plane, and I get off the plane in Mumbai, it's like, well, guess who's there to meet me? The International Mission Board. 
It's like, that's an organization. Well, thank God. Because they can speak the language and they know the streets and they took me to see the slums and they told me their complex strategy, biblical strategy to, to reach the slums and reach the college students and reach the unreached people groups in the city and reach the businessmen and equip the local leaders. And it's like, wow, Mumbai is 25 million people and it's complex, but somehow you guys are an organization that's working it out. So that's one thing. Here's another thing that we think through. What's called the doctrine of moral proximity. And, and, and hopefully this is helpful. The doctrine of moral proximity says you are most responsible for the people you are closest to relationally and organizationally. To say it another way, you're not equally responsible for every person. And you know that. That's actually a helpful thing when you see it's like, well, the starving kids in Africa. It's like, you can give that. But you are most responsible for those closest to you relationally or locationally. And so how this works is in 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, hey, if you're, if you're a, um, a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. It's like, what is that saying? Well, there should definitely be nobody naked, nobody hungry, nobody thirsty, nobody a stranger in your house. That's the first place. And then after that, it says, uh, do well to everybody. This is Galatians 6.10. He says, do well to everybody. And then he says, especially the household of faith. Which means the second priority is the church, the covenant community of the church. It's like, well, there, you know, if the elders of the staff knew that there was a hungry person in our church, I hope not. That there, there, there was a person who needed basic necessities and clothing in our church. It's, it's that we are most responsible for the felt and forever needs of those closest to us. To say it kind of, it doesn't get anyone off the hook. Here's what it means. You are most responsible for your kids. You are most, it's like, you are most responsible. Nobody is more responsible for your neighbor than you. Like, step out, look at the three houses across the street, look at the two houses next to you, and realize you're the most responsible person for them. That's what that means. It means you're not responsible for every person who lives in, you know, Kernersville. But your moral proximity says you're most responsible for the people closest to you. Another thing that we, we, we think through a lot is through our groups. So this is why we talk about community groups all the time. It's very, very practical. It's very, very biblical. It's very, very helpful. We, our, our community groups exist for those three purposes, ministry, mercy, and mission. Like most people get into a group because of ministry. They're like, well, I, you know, I want fellowship and I want friendship and I want Bible study and I want prayer and that's ministry. But the worst kind, I'll be honest with you, the worst type of community group is the holy huddle that's been together just having a little Bible study for five years. It's like that, that gets stagnant. You need to have mercy and mission actually to sustain a healthy ministry locally in that, in that group. And so what we're asking is we're saying, would every, would every group pray toward baptizing one person? Because that would be mission, lost people. And would every group connect with one ministry to meet a least need, to meet a felt need? Think about that. It's like, man, it, it, it can be an aspirational goal. It could take you six months. But if you're praying for one lost person and you're connecting to one ministry, to mini one ministry or organization that ministers to the least of these, you're going to have a comprehensive ministry as a group of whatever it is, 15 or 20 of you. So these is, this is what Jesus teaches. And then at the end, the stakes could not be higher. I want you to see how he ends. Verse 46, I read it earlier, but he says this, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Though there are many options in this life, there are only two in the next. And it's interesting, I don't know if you, if you saw the Freedom From Religion commercial this week. You can Google it later, but um, obviously it doesn't sound like a great organization, does it? Freedom From Religion, okay? 
Well, Ron Reagan is his name. He's Ronald Reagan's son. Ron Reagan gets on this, and I could not believe when I saw this. He gets on there, and he speaks freedom from religion, freedom from religion, freedom. And I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, don't like it. But and then he, then he goes, I'm Ron Reagan. This is literally how it ends. He goes, I'm Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid to burn in hell. And that's the end of the commercial. I had to watch it four or five times. I was like, did he say that? I'm like putting subtitles on. I'm like, is that what he said? Because, right, most people don't believe. Most people don't, in America, only believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell. And maybe we're the last, you know, maybe I'm the only person, nothing special about me, I'm just saying, maybe, maybe I'm the first person that's ever told you this. Not everybody goes to heaven. It doesn't go well for everybody forever. But every funeral you went to, you'd think everybody went to heaven. It's like, yeah, he was an axe murderer, but he's in a better place, you know? <laughs> that happens. It's like, I remember a, guy, a friend of mine, he had to do a funeral of somebody who was a devout atheist and unbeliever. He got up, he said, I, make the, I don't know the guy's name, what the guy's name was. He said, you know, we all know that Jim, you know, didn't believe in God and Jim this and whatever. And we know Jim. I want to tell you something. If Jim could speak to you today, he'd want you to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's about as real as it gets right there. It's like, you know, the church may be the last place, and we say this lovingly, but we say naturalism is a lie. You don't die and disappear. Universalism is a lie. You don't just die and get to do whatever you want to do afterwards. That, that there is, the Bible says we die and then we face judgment. We die and we don't stand in front of a mirror. We stand in front of our maker. And we give an account of our entire life. And the Bible talks about hell as, as uh, eternal, conscious, irreversible torment. And it's, it, it's, it's, when we talk about it, we should talk about it with tears in our eyes and broken hearts. I love what, what Charles Spurgeon, that famous pastor of the 1800s, here's what he said about hell. And this is, how, this is how I want to feel. This is how I want the posture of our church to feel. Because if this is the posture of our church, then we're going to care about felt needs and forever needs. And we're going to keep the perspective. We're going to keep everything right in its right place. Here's what he says. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. See, what you'll find is that churches that talk a lot about hell talk a lot about the cross. Churches that talk a lot about the cross talk a lot about hell. But churches that don't talk about the cross don't talk about hell. Churches that don't talk about hell don't talk about the cross. Why? It's because it's the two places the wrath of God was poured out. And what's interesting is not only, and we see in this parable, Jesus connects himself with the least. He says, you know, whenever you did this, you did it to the least of me. But it's not just that he identifies with the least. It's that actually at the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ actually, literally, technically became the least. Like when they say, Lord, when were you naked? Do you know the answer to that? The cross. There's no loincloth, by the way. They would do crucifixions completely naked to humiliate you. So the answer is, Lord, when were you naked? The answer is, at the cross. Lord, when were you a prisoner? When they took me away from my unjust trial. That's when. Lord, when were you thirsty? When I was hanging on the cross and I said, I'm thirsty. Lord, when were you a stranger? I was a stranger when I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And see, Christ experienced all of those things so we could experience the opposite. He was a stranger so that we would be welcomed in. 
He was hungry and thirsty so that we could be fed with his body and with his blood. He was naked so that we could be clothed. And the more and more that we feel that in our heart and in our soul, we're going to care for the lost and we're going to care for the least. Let's pray.